verse 31. So the events of Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 44, are tied together chronologically and geographically with several motifs. First, the framework of Jesus' quotation from Isaiah 61 begins to work itself out in Capernaum with the release of the demon-possessed captive. Second, Jesus continues to minister in the synagogues and the people continue to be impressed by Jesus' teaching, but also continue to misunderstand his true mission. Third, through the, though the people do not understand the full extent of Jesus' identity, the demons do, and they proclaim him as the Holy One of God, the Son of God. However, the people's false understanding would lead to their resistance to Jesus. Fourth, the conflict Jesus comes against with the people is due to their lack of understanding of his true identity. They expect him as a Messiah to be something he has come has not come to be. Fifth, Luke continues to emphasize the importance of response to who Jesus is, both through the negative and the positive response of the people. And this is another emphasis of Luke is, the real key is how do you respond? By the end of Jesus' life, there will be no doubt what he did and what he said. Even the Pharisees will admit and acknowledge he did miracles. He healed people. He spoke with authority. He did things that no one else ever did. By the end of his life, no one will question his words or deeds. The real question that Luke is putting out there is, how will you respond? How will you respond? Not what he did and said, but how you will respond. That's the real question. Verse 31. Now we move outside of Nazareth to a neighboring town of Capernaum. So he went down to Capernaum, a town of Galilee, on the Sabbath and began to teach the people. They were amazed at his teachings because he spoke with authority. Now this is important. He is speaking with great authority. Now what do they mean by that? In Israel at this time period, the rabbis were the teachers. And the rabbis would teach. And the way that they taught was there would be these really well-respected rabbis. So the first rabbis that ever really started forming the schools of the rabbis. And they would, they would discuss and debate, and they wrote things down. There is a plethora of rabbis in their writings. And so pretty much at that point, any idea that you could ever come up with, any interpretation that you could ever have, or any understanding you could ever have has probably already been covered by people. There's already like, oh, Rabbi Goldstein says that over there. Rabbi Bar Kachva says that over there. Like, When you have a plethora of commentators over a long period of time, you're, it's going to be hard-pressed to be new and original with an interpretation on something, especially something that's not so left out there, left field, that you're like, what? There's no way that that's ever what it meant. Okay. So by the time that Jesus' day comes along, rabbis didn't actually teach the Word of God. They didn't actually say, like, this is how we should interpret da 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 Because there were so many dissenting views out there and so ultimate things, and they didn't really know who the authority was, a lot of times they would just say, well, they would get the passage out, and they would read it, and they would say, well, Rabbi Goldstein says this, and Rabbi Barkarchva says this, and Rabbi, 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 and then they'd be like, okay, here we are, we're done. And they would just basically quote all these other people. And then you would walk away, and you're like, well, I have 50 million ideas in my head now, but I still don't know what the scriptures really truly say. When Jesus comes along, this is why in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. Now, what he means is you've heard rabbi this and rabbi that and rabbi that and rabbi that. 
And in the end, you walked away and you still didn't know what you were supposed to do with your life. But now I tell you, this is the only way to understand the scriptures. And he can say that because he is the author of the scriptures. He is the literal word of God. Therefore, he is the only correct interpretation. And so there may be many different applications of scripture, but there's only ever one interpretation. And that's what Jesus hits perfectly every time. What they're amazed by is they're not just amazed by his words. They're not just amazed by his understanding. Like the teachers of the law were in the temple when he was 12 years old, they're amazed by his authority. The audacity that he has to say, I tell you. This is what it is. To stand up and say, today, this is fulfilled now. Not 50 million views on how it will be and when it will be, but it's right now. And that's an authority that nobody has. I mean, I can't, I can't speak with that authority interpretation, interpreting scripture. Now, hopefully I won't leave you even more confused than a rabbi in the ancient world and give you a little bit more concrete understanding and idea. But also, I don't want to go to the other extreme where I speak with such confidence, such arrogance that I become the word of God and, and there are no other valid views. And so as a human, there is that tension. But he's God. He doesn't have to embrace that tension. He is the understanding. And so this is what they're amazed by. Now, part of it could be, I'm amazed, like, holy crap, I've never heard anybody speak like this. This actually makes sense now. Or it could be like, holy crap, who does he think he is to speak with such authority? Amazement can go both ways. But either way, everybody's amazed. Because he doesn't sound like any other rabbi. Verse 33, now in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! Leave us alone, Jesus of Nazarene. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This man is dis- d- um, demon-possessed. And Luke makes the point of calling him unclean. The word spirit has already been used multiple times. We've seen the word spirit used with the Holy Spirit. And we've seen the word spirit used of the Spirit of God. We've seen the word spirit used of the leading of God, that kind of stuff. In the, the Greek mythology, the word demon is just used of a godlike being. The word demon for them is not necessarily a bad spirit. A demon could be a malicious god or spirit that messes with you, or it could be a benevolent spirit or a completely neutral spirit. It's just a, a godlike being. It's usually what we, where we get the idea of a demigod, a lesser god. A lower totem pole God. If you use the word spirit with your Gentile audience who are from the Greek culture, they don't exactly understand. They don't really think of spirits in the same way that the Jews do. And the way that you've been using the word spirit over and over again is the Holy Spirit. So now you see this person has a spirit in them and they're the, the Gentile reader. But if you use the word demon, they'll be like, oh, that's awesome. I would love to have a God in me. I could do things like Jason Agronauts. You're going to confuse them. So Luke creates a phrase that has never been used in any other gospel, and it's this phrase of unclean spirit, where we get the idea of demon. And the idea is that everybody has a concept of what unclean is. No matter what religion, what culture you come from, unclean is always bad. It's always not good. And most importantly, it always disconnects you from the gods and their blessings. And they're all, and it's always 
out of favor with the gods somehow. And so by using the word unclean spirit, he's making it very clear to them that no matter what you think about demons in a Greek mythology kind of a sense, this is not good. This is going to cut you off from God. And it's in him and it's tormenting him. And knows the demon immediately knows who Jesus is. He calls him the son of the most high. The Pharisees and the Jews are never going to fully understand nor embrace who Jesus is. But the demons immediately recognize him, immediately call him who he is, and never question ever. And the other thing that you notice about the demons, they're absolutely terrified by his authority. They're not just amazed and wowed. They're not just impressed. They're not even just horrified in amazement, like how dare he. They are falling to the ground in absolute fear as authority. And so Luke does a contrast here where Israelites have been rejecting Jesus in Nazareth and they just want performance and miracles where the demons immediately recognize who he is. They're not confused and they're not questioning, but he's speaking with authority and the demons actually respect and obey the authority of Christ. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Silence, come out of him. Then after the demon threw the man down in their midst, he came out of him without hurting him. Now, a couple things are happening. Jesus is rebuking the demon. There's a judgment here. There's a command here. And that without hesitation, the demon immediately obeys. But the other thing here is he won't allow him to talk. It's not just get out of him. Notice he says, silence, stop talking. Because the last thing that Jesus needs is the testimony that he is God from a demon. Because anybody can use that as fodder in their argument. Like, well... The demons back him up as God, like when we can't trust demons. So he's silencing the testimony of illegitimate authorities, even though their, their, their testimony is correct. He rebukes and he controls them. And so this is the contrast that even the demons recognize Jesus and obey him. Yet Jesus' own people have tried to kill him and do not recognize him. The flip side of this is when James says, you think Jesus is God? Great, good for you. Because even the demons believe that he's God. And they're no better off. The key is submission and relationship. And he left him unharmed. The thing that's happening here is very important to understand that we're beginning to see Isaiah happen. He's releasing this captive. This captive has been captivated by or been held oppressed by a demon. And now Jesus is releasing him. And so this Isaiah passage is beginning to be fulfilled and carried out. But the other thing is that it's leaving unharmed. In the ancient world, there were stories of people who could um, exorcise demons out of people. But every time you saw this exorcism, two things happened. First, it involved complicated rituals. Even Elijah and Elisha, when they healed the little boy, and they had to like, they laid on them like seven times. They walked back and forth, and they did all these things. And so when a person did an exorcism, they would pray over them, and they would chant, and they would do a ritual. They would light incense and wave them over them. And we've seen these in movies, right? Catholic movies and, and shamanistic movies and that kind of stuff. And it was a battle. And then that process would often throw the figure down on the ground, and they'd be flopping around and smacking into things as the thing was coming out. And if they were successful and the demon came out, it involved a whole lot of thrashing. 
And so obviously by the end, the person was harmed physically. Demons are known for self-inflicting pain on the body of the person they're possessed, and they're also known for fighting and tormenting the person as they're being pulled out. Yet this demon comes out instantaneously. No rituals, no incense, no magical talismans. Jesus merely speaks and it leaves. No thrashing, no battle, no contest. It leaves him unharmed. And you will never see any story like this in all the religions of the world. You'll never see any kind of exorcism like this in any of the religions of the world. And yet, this is what he does instantaneously. And this is why they're amazed. This is why they're amazed. And they say to one another, what's happening here? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. The news about him spread to all the areas of the regions. So not only does he speak with great authority in what the word of God is and how it should be understood, but he also commands the demons with great authority. And this is what is being established here. Verse 38. After Jesus left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he stood over her and commanded the fever to leave and leave her, and immediately she got up and began to serve. The same idea is happening here. He comes to Simon. Now we know Simon as Peter. His name is going to be changed. Unfortunately, as much as I love the Chosen series, the Chosen series got something inaccurate. Most likely, Peter's wife is dead. Simon's wife is dead. The fact that the mother-in-law would be living with him would imply the death of his wife. And that's just, and don't ask me to explain why that's the way it is. It just is that way. So most likely his wife is dead this time. In fact, because the Gospels, why would the Gospels on numerous occasions refer to Peter's mother-in-law, but never to his wife? And ever deal with that issue of where's his wife this entire time that he's with Jesus and that kind of stuff. And why the mother-in-law show up, but his wife doesn't. So culturally speaking, the way they do things, the only reason the mother-in-law would be living with them is if the, mother, the, 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 the daughter's dead. It's more likely the daughter would be going to visit the mother-in-law and taking care of her there than it would be for the mother-in-law to be brought to them. And so it implies that his wife is already dead. Now, that's not an absolute proven fact, but just the, all the, puzzles, the piece, pieces of the puzzle coming together implies that in what we know of the culture. So Jesus comes along, and I know it says he commanded, but in the Hebrew, or in the Greek, it says he rebuked the spirit, the, 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 the sickness. And so what Luke is saying, as a doctor, this sickness was probably a result of an unclean spirit, where the unclean spirit possessed and took control of the body of the man, this spirit is merely just making this woman sick. And Jesus rebukes it. And so now he shows his authority over sickness and disease. And so now what Jesus is doing is touching in all realms. He's touching all realms. Now, for the Jew, this would be significant because this is proving that Jesus is from God. That there is no realm that is untouched. And they already know that Yahweh touches all realms of human existence and has sovereignty over them. However, for his Gentile audience, this would be clearly showing that Jesus is not limited by domains or realms. Remember, in their pagan way of thinking, you have one God that can do healings, another God that can cast out demons, another God that can do this, another God that can do that, and none of them overlapped. Again, Jesus is crossing all realms and all domains 
and having no problem in all of this. So on both levels, this is communicating the absolute sovereignty and uniqueness to the Gentile who Jesus is, and to the Jew it's emphasizing that he's truly connected to Yahweh. He truly represents Yahweh. Now, we're beginning to transition from Luke, who has already developed Jesus as the royal messianic king. Now we're transitioning into Jesus as the regal prophet. Luke is going to be emphasizing Jesus as the prophet more and more now. Where Matthew will keep kingship very strong all throughout his gospel, Luke is transitioning from kingship to prophet now. And so now he's the royal regal prophet, not just king. And then notice, just like the demon came out of the man and he was not hurt, this unclean spirit, the sickness came out of the woman and she immediately got up and started serving them. For those who've all had COVID or the flu or pneumonia or whatever, you know that when you get better and your fever is gone and the aches and pains are gone and you're no longer down and out and you can go back to work again, you get, you're still really exhausted and tired. And your energy level takes a while to recover. Well, the idea of just serving a bunch of guests right the minute you got out of bed. And so this emphasizes the absolute instantaneous, complete recovery of Jesus' miracle here. Verse 40. After the sun was setting, all those who had many, any relatives sick with various diseases brought them to Jesus, and he placed his hands on every one of them and healed them. Demons also came out of many, crying out, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ or the Messiah. This is the first time the word Christ is used here and it communicates the idea of the anointed one. The next morning Jesus departed and went to the deserted place. Yet the crowds were seeking him and they came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But Jesus said to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns too. For this, that is what I was sent to do. And so he continued to preach in the synagogue of Judea. What this is doing is showing you that Jesus is going to town, to town, to town, doing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle of all different levels, healings, sicknesses, um, um, and, and, and demonic possessions, exorcisms, and that kind of stuff. And all the people are constantly amazed. And so by the time he gets, after a year or so, there's no question of who this man is and what he's doing and how successful he is. Yet, they want the power. They're pressing upon him. And what they are going to cry out more and more and more is not, will you help us know God? Will you give us a deeper understanding of the scriptures? Will you help me in my relationship with God? What they're saying is, heal me, heal me, heal me, heal me. Now once again, you can't blame them. That's human nature. That's what we desire. But you also can relate to that. Where the mark of a mature Christian is when the prayers begin to move from just completely, I need, I need, I need, I need, to also praise and thanksgiving and just conversations with God. All they're clamoring for is the power, the power, the power, the power. And it's, it's and he, he withdraws from them. It's, it's like... Little kindergartner kids with snotty nose. He has to like peel them off of his legs as he's trying to get away and just like get a breath. And he's like goes away to isolated, barren places in order to spend time with God. 
and to get refreshed because he is human after all. And that was the good thing that Chosen showed. The Chosen did a really good job of showing that even though he is God and he's able to do all these miracles, he's still human. And it, it, it would be draining to deal with these people's needs all day and to be healing them. And though there's no limit to God's power and God is never tired out in meeting our needs, Jesus is also human and he is going to get tired and he is going to get weak and dis- because the reason that he came was to know what it was like to be us and to be able to sympathize with us and give us help when we're in need and empathy. And so this would be draining. And so there's a sense where he says, I had to go to other towns and I had to get away from all of you so that I can get refreshed. And remember, if you're not meeting your own needs, then you're not going to have a successful ministry. Some people get this God complex whether intentionally or unintentionally or consciously or subconsciously where they just they, they can't say no to this ministry and that ministry like people need me I had to do this this needed and really what it is is the belief that God can't do it without you and what you do is you just end up driving yourself in the ground and you begin to hurt yourself physically and emotionally and mentally you begin to hurt your family too as you can't meet their needs because you're too busy saying yes to everything else and then eventually everything else begins to fall apart and then you have burnout and this is why burnout is a huge problem in ministries in America because Americans have a hard time saying no and then your ministry runs out in a few years but if you can take care of yourself and self love and health and that's not a horrible bad word, (laughs) then your ministry is fueled by your relationship with God. You don't make sacrifices that are unnecessary and not beneficial, and your your ministry can last for years without burnout. And this is what Jesus is doing. He has no problem saying no. I know there's lots of people that are still sick in this village, but there's other villages. And and I know you need me right now, but I need to spend time with God, and I need to sleep. And I need to eat. And I need to get away from you a while so they can emotionally stop putting up with you. And self-care. Self-care is very important. Because even on an airplane, they tell you to put your mask on before your kid's mask on. Okay, You can't help people when you're dead. Luke is slowly developing Jesus. The regal prophet's salvific mystery fulfills the program laid out in Luke 4. 18 through 19. The people do not understand his true identity mission, and yet Jesus would attend to each person personally and often touch with touch and shows his care for the people. So despite their rejection, despite their greediness, despite the one that they just want power, not a relationship, despite all these things, he still cares for them. He's still hands-on. He still cares for them. But he also has boundaries. He also has boundaries. Boundaries are healthy for everybody. 